Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. As much as I really wanted it to happen, all of a sudden as an actress, I was like, I'm not ready. Like, I need more time. No. And I was doing like little tiny things to make it more difficult to make the film um, when they wanted to make it. And at one point I got, you know, on the phone with one of the heads of the studios and I like was begging for more prep time. Even after seven years, I didn't feel like I had enough. And he's like, okay, I'll give you three more days. <laughs> I was like, no, I need more. But it really was a situation where someone kind of had to like push me out of the nest to see if I could do it because I, w- I wasn't going to jump. I was too scared. Hello and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm Clarissa Cruz, EW's Executive Editor. I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Rothkopf, EW's Senior Movies Editor. Hi, Josh. Hey, how you doing? Good. Today our guest is Jessica Chastain, whose transformation into the notorious televangelist Tammy Faye Baker, in the eyes of Tammy Faye, has taken the Oscar race by storm. It was a full metamorphosis into character for her, involving not only Jessica's work on the voice and the psychology, but an army of makeup and prosthetic technicians working to co-create a performance with the actor. And that's as good a segue as any into today's topic of conversation, the act of transformation. Good acting always involves a plunge of some kind into method like Dustin Hoffman or Marlon Brando or other kinds of psychology. But there's also the radical changes of face and body that we're seeing lately in performances like Gary Oldman's Oscar-winning turn in The Darkest Hour as Winston Churchill or Nicole Kidman's In the Hours. It's also worth noting that these kind of techniques have been with us for a while, dating all the way back to Lon Chaney and The Phantom of the Opera. So Clarissa, why don't you kick us off? What do you think an actor gains or loses when they use prosthetics? Um, Well, I guess my first question is because are are we going to make a distinction between when an actor gains or loses weight? And because that's, that's also another kind of transformation and and one that's happened a lot over the years Um, between that and, or them using prosthetics, which is a whole other thing too. I mean, I find them both really fascinating. Right. I think about Robert De Niro and Raging Bull. I think that's sort of like the archetypal example of someone gaining, I think he gained like 60 or 70 pounds, went to Italy and ate all sorts of foods to play Jake LaMotta after his career versus Jake LaMotta when he was boxing. Those kind of techniques that an actor does, actually gaining that kind of weight, it's a little scary to me. It's really like turning your own body into something malleable. Why is it always with these boxing movies that people are like putting their bodies through hell? I mean, I w- it, was, it was so, um, it's crazy. And sometimes it can even be dangerous. Do you remember when Christian Bale lost all that weight to play in The Machinist? I don't know if you remember that. One. Oh, the other way around. Yeah, where where an actor like becomes almost like like a waif, and that's happened over and over again. Also, and I feel like having that kind of command of weight, though, it's almost distracting sometimes. In the sense that maybe the best kind of acting 
should be done just by the power of imagination, facial movements, or or acting. I mean, maybe all, <laughs> yeah, by by acting, right? I, there's that famous anecdote I remember hearing about Lawrence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman talking on the set of Marathon Man, and Dustin Hoffman was playing his character entirely in method, and he asked Olivier, "What does he do to get into character?" And Lawrence Olivier, I think, famously said, "Oh, I I just act." Right. So, so it's kind of, I think that there is something to be said for, for the idea of just trying to get a performance over communicated to the audience without using these kind of physical transformations, literal transformations to your weight or to your face or using prosthetics or heavy makeup. But I mean, I guess every part of an actor's body and physique, the physiology of a person should be used in, in a performance. It's not a minimalist thing, it's almost like maximalist. When you're watching Darkest Hour, are you able to see Gary Oldman or are you seeing Winston Churchill or or are you seeing a stunt happen? Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of an interesting question because it's like, you know, in, in these transformative movies, especially if it's an actor or actress that's that's pretty well known and, you know, you know their face. I think the biggest compliment is when someone says, I forgot it was them and they sort of just embodied this character. I mean, I have just top of mind because it's recent in being the Ricardos because that's an interesting transformation. Nicole Kidman plays Lucille Ball and she, I don't, you know, she doesn't look like her. Um, that You know, they're very, they're very different. But I feel like she embodied her, you know, she she got the voice, she got the 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 sort of um, the attitude and and I think the you know, the essence of her without having to look completely like her. That said, I did forget it was Nicole Kidman, too. So I feel like she did her job. What are your thoughts on that? I feel like it's I mean, it's always a fine line. I want the actor to disappear into the role. So I'm completely absorbed into the story. And if I'm ever thinking like, oh, wow, Nicole is really killing it in the scene, I feel like that's almost like evidence that she's not quite doing that because I'm actually noticing the actress and not the performance. But that said, every once in a while, an actor buries themselves in all this makeup and prosthetics and heavy extra work. And yet at the same time, I'm really feeling the performance and in a way seeing them more clearly. The, the example that comes to mind is a strange one, but there was a movie I remember called Shadow of the Vampire, and Willem Dafoe plays this old silent movie star named Max Schreck, who was the star of Nosferatu. I don't know if you remember this movie. No, I don't. It's this fascinating performance because Willem Dafoe, he does great work year after year after year, and he's great in the new Nightmare Alley as well. But in this performance, he has like fake vampire teeth. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I remember this now. I remember this now. Yeah, right. And, it, and it's, he's playing against John Malkovich, who himself kind of like a special effect and, you know, doing his overacting, his Malkovichisms. But in a very quiet way, you really get a sense of Defoe and the pain that this actor is feeling through this shooting this vampire film, even though he's covered in heavy makeup the whole time. At first, it's funny and, and you're watching it and you're laughing. And then after a while, you really begin to feel like the pathos behind Max Schreck. And I think that that's a good example of an actor using makeup and prosthetics to good effect. What do you think about Jared Leto and House of Gucci? Well, I feel like we could just do a whole podcast on him, on his various <laughs> transformations. Well, it, on House of Gucci, yes, but also on his various transformations throughout his career. And I find him super interesting because 
he's, uh, you know, he came on the scene in my so-called life, which was like a very instrumental show in my youth. Um, but he was kind of like a dreamboat in that, in that, um, in that show and was like the fantasy, you know, teen heartthrob guy. And it seems like he's sort of been making the complete opposite choices in his film career, like sort of burying the handsomeness under all of his physical transformations, which I, which I think is so interesting. You know, and, and obviously House of Gucci is the latest one, but, you know, so many of his movies in the last, you know, decade have been complete transformations. Dallas Buyers Club, Joker, obviously, and Suicide Squad, just so many and in so many ways. I think it's so, it's, it's, it's interesting to examine um, him, you know, as, as an actor because he seems to just gravitate to this d despite his, his conventionally handsome looks. But getting back to House of Gucci. Yeah. Which, which, which is, which is top of mind for awardists. I mean, I thought it was really funny what Leah said in her view that they should have just hired Jeffrey Tambor because that, that's what he ended up looking like um, at the end. But I think, I mean, I think he had so much fun with his role in this movie. I mean, he, he, he seems to be in a different movie from everybody else. And I mean that in a very entertaining, funny way. I feel like I always was going to laugh every time I saw him on screen, um, whether that was the purpose or not. Um, what about you? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm 100% with you in that he, he feels like he's been piped down from another planet. And I almost feel like he understood what, what House of Gucci, I think, could have been in its best, in its, in, in the best outcome. It could have really embraced its campiness. It could have really gone for something that was, I mean, every once in a while, it feels like the fun trash that I wanted it to be. But it, it also is an extremely self-serious movie and it's so long. And I, I found myself wishing that it was trashier in a way. And so, yes, whenever, whenever Jared Leto is on screen, I feel like the movie kind of clicks into some weird overheated register and all the actors around him, he has a warp on them. So you watch, for example, you watch Jeremy Irons in some of his scenes and they're very elegant and understated. And then he's playing the scene with Jared and all of a sudden he's like, Oh, Jared's doing that. And then it becomes like a sort of dueling Mario scene. And you're like, I can't believe this is a real movie by a serious director. So I feel like when there's the presence of an actor like a Jared Leto who really commits to that sort of transformation, it almost ups everyone else's game. And by up, I don't necessarily mean make better so much as it sends everyone into a different register of performance. It's more daring. It's more playful. It can be more fun for an audience. And, and I, I do think that this is an enormous heavy lift for material that isn't quite worth it in, Jared, in, in House of Gucci's case. I mean, he's playing, he's playing a very ridiculous character that I, I almost wish was a little better written given the physical commitment that Jared does in it. But you're right. He has this tradition of sort of negating his good looks. And I think that that, I, I think that that shows, I mean, they're, they're, I don't want to psychoanalyze him, but there is um, there is this idea that um, being especially good looking can itself be a mask, and actors are always trying to escape that mask as well. They're trying to escape the, the persona. They're trying to appear as little as possible so that we can enter into them as they change their performances. I also think it's interesting to compare Jared Leto's performance in House of Gucci to someone like uh, Lady Gaga who I don't think is relying so much on makeup and hair and prosthetics. And she's kind of embracing a sort of a different style of acting. And I think that her conviction is coming off better 
in a way than Jared's. But this is a sidetrack. Among your favorite performances ever, if you thought about acting in general, Clarissa, are those performances more a matter of an actor grabbing at a certain psychology or is it more of a matter of transformation? Hmm. I mean, if you're talking about the favorite uh, transformative performances, it hits upon a point that you made earlier where you're you're talking about Jared and being conventionally handsome and sort of trying to get away from that mask. Um, And that made me think of Charlize and Monster. Um, because I think that definitely was one. And I know there was a lot going on there, you know, prosthetics wise and makeup wise, but I feel like she really delivered on the emotional truth of her performance in that one. It wasn't just a physical thing, even though it seemed, especially when you see her at the Oscars and you see that she does not look, she (laughs) most definitely doesn't look like that. I, I, I I didn't find it distracting. I found that she really disappeared into that character. And I thought that was just such a, such a great performance. You know, on the uh, on the other side, not that I don't think this is a great performance, but it, for Nicole Kidman in the hours, that that was distracting to me for yeah. for some reason. I don't know. It's it, it, it was a it's a whole different thing. It was a much shorter part of the movie than than Charlize's was, so maybe it's an un- unfair comparison. But I did find that distracting, even though I did find her very good as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it sometimes. I mean, I I, I respect the commitment that an actor makes to that kind of to adopting a like a facial feature, like a, like a fake nose like that. But boy, does it throw me out of the film. What I, I'm going to sound like a basic here, but one of my favorite transformative performances is Marlon Brando's Vito Corleone in The Godfather, where if you watch a, a performance that he does in Last Tango in Paris, which was shot at the same time, you see the Brando, the very handsome, naturalistic Marlon Brando, but you watch him in, in The Godfather, he's putting orange slices in his cheeks, you know, to like fatten them up. He's doing this heavy accent. His hair is gray and thin. He's uh, gained a certain amount of weight. He's lethargic. He's moving slowly. And the idea of this sort of eminence grease of the family, Vito Corleone, like that's such an, a, a commanding performance. And that's an actor using all the techniques they have, not just vocal techniques and psychological transformation, but a a fair amount of help from the makeup department and the costume department. And that's a trick I think that actors have been using for decades, the idea of like fattening up their mouths and their lips to to make their voice sound strange. But it's just when I'm watching The Godfather, I am never thinking, oh, this actor is doing something really strange. I'm wrapped in the story. I'm like completely locked in. I'm thinking about what I I assume we're supposed to be thinking about, which is the drama of the situation. I'm not thinking about how it was made. I'm not thinking about how the actor got there. And so I guess for me, that's the fine lines. When I was watching House of Gucci, I was just thinking about what a crazy stunt the whole film felt like. I was never once thinking like, oh no, they're going to lose their dynasty. I mean, I was never, I was never locked. <laughs> You're never invested. Yeah, were you? I mean, like, I mean, I was entertained, and I thought she is good, uh, Lady Gaga. Like that wasn't that. That was definitely what you were saying earlier. That not a prosthetics. Uh, you know, obviously the costume and the hair. You know, that I'm sure that helped her get into character. But that was another essence, I think, performance and um, and a really strong one from from her end. And then and this is another one in recent memory, but one that I also liked, even though even though I didn't totally love the movie, was um, Glenn Close in Hillbilly Elegy. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, like she just, I don't know. I, 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 and, and, um, Joey Nolfi, our, our colleague and I are in agreement about this, but I feel like, you know, 
not just the physical transformation, but the clothes in that, like her cats, t-shirts and, you know, ensembles in that, I think, um, just, just added to the character and, and she was great. And, um, and I think that's, Absolutely. that, that's, that was one example of all of the, the sum of the transformative parts, um, made a great whole. She was definitely the best part about that movie. And that character, Mama, she really, that comes to life through her commitment. I also think about some of the performances that Sean Penn has done throughout his career, especially in Carlito's Way, where he's playing some Jewish lawyer who's got like hair yeah, clubs yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and bald head, and he's got this accent, and he thinks that he's a gangster. And you can also see Sean Penn, he has this incredible role in Licorice Pizza that's now out in, in Los Angeles and, and New York. But he plays sort of, it's a riff on William Holden. I think the character's name is Jack Holden, but he's basically a stand-in for William Holden. He's got kind of 50s hair, it's sort of slick back. He's he feels like an actor who's little past his prime, famous, recognizable, and yet you see Sean Penn in it. It's not like he's completely transformed and you would not recognize him. That's an example of an actor using, you know, the the wardrobe department, the hair and makeup department to help him get into a role. You know, I'd love that performance, actually. Our guest today, Jessica Chastain in Eyes of Tammy Faye, which is the whole reason that we kicked off this transformation conversation. I'm fascinated with her transformation because we just closed the story for our awardus mini mag that talked about her transformation. And I think all of the physical aspects of that have been well documented. Um, we've read all about the prosthetics. We've read about the clothes and the hair uh, for transformation as Tammy Faye. But there was a lot going on beneath the surface there too. That's what the focus of our story is. And I think that really gets at the essence that we're all talking about in a successful performance where you're not just you know, doing the physical things, but there was a lot that she did down to even just the breathing exercises to play Tammy Faye, um, just understanding yeah. her psychology and how that manifested itself physically in her performance. And I thought that was super fascinating mm -hmm. and really shows a lot of commitment. A lot of commitment. And Chastain is really a very serious actor and has been for so long on stage as well. It's interesting in her case, sometimes she reminds me a little of Julianne Moore in the sense that there is this beauty there that has to sometimes be tamped down for us to enter into the character. I think about Chastain's work in um, Zero Dark Thirty, and that's such an amazing unvarnished performance. The CIA analyst, and at the same time dealing with a certain amount of sexism at work and in the field. And so I feel like for her to enter into a character like Tammy Faye Baker, we can't really be thinking that it's Jessica Chastain. She really has to do like a full on makeover. And that's what our piece covers, all the different technicians and craftspeople that went into helping her co-create this character. And we'll be hearing from Jessica herself in just a few moments when we come back. Welcome back to The Awardist. Jessica Chastain sat down with our interviewer, Nick Romano, in New York City. Here's Jessica on our subject of the day, transformation. I like to transform in films. I mean, this is the first time I've had heavy prosthetics, but I also had a prosthetic nose um, when I did The Heiress on Broadway. I like to play characters that are different than me. And so I also like then to trust, you know, artists who can help me do that. It doesn't mean I need to like look like a completely different human being, but I need to tell, I tell a story through all aspects. So yes, emotionally, I'm telling a story. I'm telling a story with my voice. I'm telling a story with my heart, my soul, my brain, and all, all of these things and my mannerisms and 
and all of that. But then also I'm telling a story in, in terms of what my character chooses to wear every day, how she chooses to wear her hair, what lip shade um, she picks in the morning and all of, all of those things. So I know there's a lot of talk about like how shocking the transformation is. But if you think of like a lot of the characters I've played from Lucille in Crimson Peak, uh, Molly's Game, Most Violent Year, Anna Morales, there's a, or The Hell, there's a lot of characters that look different than me. And I think that's the great gift of being able to be in this industry is it connects you to humanity and that you're playing people different than you. So I, I revel in any type of transformation that um, people can help me with. During her research to play Tammy Faye Baker, Jessica came into contact with all sorts of different people who love her, everyone from televangelists to drag queens. It's been wonderful being around people who share a common love for Tammy Faye because I, I guess the thing about her that resonates with a lot of people, no matter where they're from or you know their identities or their backgrounds or even what country they're from, they relate to this idea of being an underdog. You know, there's something with Tammy that really broke my heart the more that I studied her and watched her was she just seemed so sad and lonely. And she would laugh through it and push through it, just like I guess most comedians do. A lot of comedians are really the kind of there's a there's a lot of sadness. Um and that's what makes them reach for the humor and reach for the love to make others laugh because they don't they don't want anyone else to feel that sadness. And so I wonder if it's the feeling of being, I think she always felt like she wanted to be part of the group. She wanted to be connected to others. And if she ever felt on the outside, uh, it made her feel quite sad and lonely. And so she empathized with others who, who society put on the outside. When I first started working on the film, there was a lot of conversations about Tammy's makeup because that's what we all grew up learning about her and knowing about her is, you know, why did she wear so much makeup? That's what the, the media kept feeding us. It's obscene. It's a, to the extreme, you know, and now she's tattooing her face with all this makeup. Well, you know, what's the point? What is she hiding? What is this mask? And, you know, when we first started developing the project, that was the angle, I guess. It feels, feels weird to say the angle, but this thought of like the woman behind the mask. And then the more I I started to learn about her and also learn about drag is it's drag is not a mask. It's a revealing, you know, you're not hiding, you're showing who you are inside, you know, how you feel. It's a creative, beautiful art form. It's a creative self-expression, um, how you present yourself in the world and it's unique and it's authentic and it is special because it is only you, you know, you're creating your own art piece about how you feel. And so for me, I thought I found that incredibly moving, this idea that this woman is so unique and one of a kind, and society kept trying to change her and to make her smaller, to make her more pleasing by not being so wild and not being so loud and not being so bold with her self-expression. And she got to the point where she's like, I'm just going to tattoo it on me so no one could ever change me. And I find that really inspiring. That, that is the difficult aspect of like, how do you play Tammy Faye without playing a caricature? Because you watch the trailer or you watch anything and you're like, that's crazy. Or you look at a picture and you go, that's a lot. Like someone went overboard. And then you go on YouTube and you go, huh. <laughs> she actually was, that's the beautiful thing about her is she loved it. 
you can't make something. Do you know what it was? I tried not to be too silly because I saw the sadness in her, even when she was trying to make others laugh and others smile. And maybe that all that helped ground me in the performance. And then also, I just Tammy loved camp. So like this idea of like I would say, well, you know, we could make a serious movie about her. But if you just the more you like look at her and study her and like read the poems she's written and like see her, I've seen I think I've seen her make fudge four times on on you know like how she does it and it's always like mm, like she's so she loves being silly and making people laugh and she loves camp and fabulousness and that's I think why so many people love her. I, I, how do we make a movie about Tammy and not include that aspect of who she was? Because it's such a huge part of who she was. But we don't want to just make that film. So we also have to show like who was the little girl that um, kind of felt like she was never really seen. We asked Jessica about award season. She told us about the unintended benefit of meeting and being with other actresses. There are pros and cons, you know, to all of this. The beautiful thing about all of the buzz <laughs> is that hopefully people will see the film. That to me is like the most exciting thing because if I've spent so much of my time away from my family, like so much of my time I've made this a priority, I would love for it to move someone. I'd love for it to have a reaction somewhere. It doesn't have to be a, they love it. It can be provocative. They can feel challenged by it. They can feel like they really didn't like it. And then a few years, maybe revisit it. I just want that kind of communication with others. So that's a positive. And also the positive thing that I love is that I get invited to a bunch of events with other performers that I really admire and especially actresses. And this is an industry that really doesn't bring actresses together so much unless you like force it to happen. <laughs> um, so whenever they're talking about a performance and they're, you know, I don't know, what, I don't even know what to call it, but they're supporting it, you know, in the media. And that means I get to sit around a table of wonderful actresses, or I get to be at photo shoots with them, or I get to see them, I guess, along that support trail. That to me is pretty great because um, that's actually how I've made a lot of friendships over the years and then just decided like there are people I've met through these kind of experiences that then I went on to like, we have to find more projects together or a project together. And so those are both like really the positive things. A negative aspect of it is it's like the last thing you want to think about <laughs> because it just, for me, sometimes I just feel so, oh, I don't know. I like this whole, like the idea of a competition just feels so bizarre. And so I like this idea of a celebration of everyone's work and this idea that what uh, everyone does in their particular films and performances is unique to them and only they could have done it, you know? And that's something that I think should be celebrated. I got to do a, a round table and it was amazing. Yes, we had the conversation. I love Kristen Stewart. I mean, I love Jennifer Hudson because we each had time away, you know, from that filmed experience that was very cool. And I remember thinking like I was sitting with Jennifer before it started and I was like, she's so cool. And kind of like just thinking about, you know, how the gift she has in terms of her voice and just also she has this like sass about her that I really admire and, you know, this talent and also she's gorgeous. And I love, I was talking to Kristen later, I just love this 
rebellious spirit she has. And, um, you know, it's tough growing up in this industry. I didn't. And so I have a lot of admiration for anyone who started as a child and then had to navigate their way into womanhood uh, under the lenses of, you know, spectators uh, commenting about your life. So, yeah, those, those two women in particular, but anytime I can kind of actually have a co real conversation with someone that doesn't feel like we're like taking photos or um, like campaigning about a film, it makes me so excited. And that's why this experience, I can find joy in it because when I can find those moments away from um, the media. <laughs> I think the idea of campaigning for any kind of attention makes me really sad. You know, in any industry, in any field, actually in any family, <laughs> you know, this idea that you kind of have to campaign to be like, hey, look at me. I, I feel oof, that it makes me a, a little sad. So, and I know that the industry has changed a lot over the years where it became, so it's calmed down quite a bit because when I first started making movies 10 years ago, it really felt like, like some kind of presidential campaign or something bizarre where you know you're it's your they're like putting pitting people against each other and I know in the very beginning they were like pitting actresses against each other and I finally had to just be like this is crazy <laughs> I love these women and I don't want to be part of that you know narrative so I think that's the only thing that makes me a little sad I'm super excited to talk about the work but I'm not like excited about anyone feeling that they have to raise their hand to be you know seen in any way. And again, beyond the industry, in family, in, in a friendship, in uh, any kind of workplace, everyone is important and valuable. Jessica was introduced to this story through the 2000 Sundance documentary, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. I was on the press tour for Zero Dark Thirty, and I stumbled upon the documentary on television. I was jet-lagged somewhere. And I watched the documentary, and I think I'd seen it. I'm not quite my memory's a bit off on this. I don't know if I'd seen bits of it before, but I remember just, it, it hit me in a different way that evening because I just felt so shocked by my memory of her conflicting with who she was. And I realized my memory with her was not of her. My memory of Tammy Faye as a child growing up was what the media created. It was what you know, the satire comedy shows created and, you know, pictures on the cover of tabloid magazines and this kind of thing that I was fed. And I then believed it to be true. And so really, that really confused me, this idea of, wait a minute, let me go back and now study this. So it had a profound effect on me. The Steve Peters interview to me was the reason why the film had to be made. I felt so sad that I knew all about her mascara. <laughs> I knew all about all of that stuff and this, and everyone was talking so much about her makeup, but no one was talking about the fact that in 1985, when politicians don't even want to mention AIDS and people are dying, Tammy Faye uh, went against the you know, conservative evangelical community and she brought Steve Peters onto her show as an openly gay minister with AIDS and she looked into her camera to her millions of Christian followers and she reminded them what it means to be Christian and that you love through anything. And not only did she talk about what is your experience like when people are shunning you because they're afraid of you with AIDS and how sad that is and we should put our arms around you and love you. She talked about what was it like coming out to your parents 
And and he when he said that his parents loved him no matter what, she like broke down in tears and she says, "Oh, good, like that's so wonderful because we as mummies and daddies love through anything, and that's the way with Jesus." And to have millions of people watching that, who I'm sure were confronting their own, you know, issues in their family in terms of like, couldn't they really be themselves? I believe that Tammy and Steve Peters saved lives that day through that interview. And so I was, I felt ashamed that this woman hadn't been acknowledged for that and instead had been criticized for how she decided to present herself uh, in terms of her mascara. <laughs> so that night I got the rights or I, I sent an email to my agents and they, they helped me secure the rights. I didn't even have a production company or anything. So it was a long journey. I just reached out to people that I had worked with in the past that I had a lot of respect for and slowly it started to come to play. This is an interesting film because I wear two hats in it. I'm, the, I'm a producer <laughs> and I'm an actress. And at one point I realized they were both working in the opposition of the other because once it got to the point, I mean, I was terrified to do the singing. I'd never done that before. And I was so embarrassed and nervous and I felt so exposed. The accent, you know, the way her voice is like, my voice is pretty deep, but her voice is so high. Like there's so much about her that is different than how I present myself in the world. And I just, it just felt like, so exposing and so nerve-wracking that for these seven years I really studied her you know before the seven years before we got to set and I read all the books and I listened to her albums and I watched all of her YouTube interviews anything I could find on YouTube and the documentary filmmakers gave me hundreds of hours of unused footage that I studied so I really had the material to study and by the time that it looked like the film I was like okay we're greenlit we're going I realized the actor hat, the actor <laughs> was trying to sabotage the picture because as much as I really wanted it to happen, all of a sudden as an actress, I was like, I'm not ready. Like, I need more time. No. And I was doing like little tiny things to make it more difficult to make the film um, when they wanted to make it. And at one point I got, you know, on the phone with one of the heads of the studios and I like was begging for more prep time. Even after seven years, I didn't feel like I had enough. And he's like, okay, I'll give you three more days. <laughs> I was like, no, I need more. But it really was a situation where someone kind of had to like push me out of the nest to see if I could do it because I, w I wasn't going to jump. I was too scared. There was a whole team of technicians, prosthetics, makeup, hair, costume design, who helped Jessica get into character. It was really important to work with Linda and Stephanie. Um, you know, Linda's, she was head of the um, makeup department and Stephanie was head of the hair department. And then Justin was uh, head of prosthetics. It was really important for Linda and Stephanie in particular because I'd worked with them for over 10 years. And I was so scared about this character. I just really felt like I'm just going to get made fun of. This is crazy. I'm used to playing characters that are the smartest person in the room and always have the plan. It's like almost like this type A. And I don't, I never felt like Tammy was type A at all. Like she kind of was like more go with the flow and really open and loving and kind of like, you know, turn the other cheek and this quality that was so different than a lot of the other roles. So I just really was scared. Also the physicality, the voice, everything. And so to have Linda and Stephanie to talk to about this project for seven years before we arrived on set gave me a sense of security that I could just like breathe and think about the emotional arcs and my personal physicality, and they could also, I could trust them with the, um, the visual uh, transformation. The prosthetics, it was very complicated. Um, I mean, the longest day was seven and a half hours, and that was 
panic inducing because by the time you get to set, you're kind of zapped. It's not a situation. I don't know why. Like the people who can just go and like sleep, I have so much respect for them. There is no way I can sit in a chair because also you're help. You want to help these artists. They're incredible artists. So like sometimes you have to look different directions, up, down, open, close your eyes, like do things as they they're gluing on and painting and and whatnot. And so I don't understand how people could sleep. So instead, I had earbuds. And I would just listen to her voice and watch on my iPhone and her interviews and videos for the, for the time. And usually it was about the shortest, it was probably about three hours, you know, to get to set of hair and makeup, long as seven and a half. So it would kind of fall in between that. But um, I would take all of that time to prep. So I had a really long runway before I had to take off. As Tammy Faye, Jessica gets to sing a number in the movie. My preparation for singing was bourbon. I'm not even going to lie. I was so scared that, and I think I even tweeted about it. It was, it was, what did, what did it have been? It would have been 2019, I think in the fall. Yeah, right before the pre-records. I was working with Dave Cobb and it was the night before I was losing my mind. So I, I've never done that before. I was just like, I need to drink <laughs> because I'm so freaked out. And I also, I like called, I was like, I need some throat coat tea with some uh, bourbon, please. Uh, so I, you know, it was medicinal purposes, but that's actually what really helped me kind of like get beyond it. And the reason why she isn't someone who can like, she was never subtle in a song, like slowly moving into a song and having a lot of variation in her voice and whispery. She's someone who, you know, ministered through a song. And that's a lot of places starting out with no microphone system. So on that first note, she's calling up to Jesus. <laughs> you know, she's like, she's at an 11 from the moment she starts singing the song and she just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and louder and louder. And um, for a shy, reserved person, it's a nightmare. <laughs> but but um, I mean, I had to do it. I, you know, I, I had to do it. There's like, and there's a scene where I'm nervous, Tammy's nervous. And there are like, I like watching, I'm like, yeah, that note's flat. Like I can hear it, which is good because then people know it's live <laughs> because when it's not, they can, I mean, even when it's live, I think they can, I don't know. I mean, I think they have media that can do anything now, but it was important that it feel realistic. And um, when someone is nervous, I don't think they should sound like perfect. And so, yeah, there was, there was also uh, bourbon um, in the live scenes uh, while I was shooting. She's actually about to shoot a musical in Nashville for which she's preparing for now. They asked me like what a pattern might be in my roles and, and why I've worked in so many different genres and done so many things. And I think it's, I like to put myself in an uncomfortable place, not in terms of abuse or anything that doesn't feel supportive, but in terms of when you're uncomfortable, it's because you're treading new water, right? You're trying to figure out how to navigate something you've never done before. If you're comfortable, you've probably done it before. It's probably easy for you. And so for me, the more uncomfortable I am, the more I feel like, okay, it's where I have to be. This is such a privilege to get to do this, do this job. I need to put myself in that place. And so after Tammy Faye, I noticed that was the thing that made me the most uncomfortable. And I had been attached for a long time to play uh, Tammy Wynette. Uh, so I'm doing that right now with Michael Shannon as George Jones. And we have 31 songs we're singing. I think probably that's also why my voice is a bit lower because Tammy Wynette's voice is pretty low. And I've, I've had such an intensive of that. We did six weeks of rehearsals in New York 
Then I went to Nashville and did 10 days straight working with T-Bone Burnett on the songs. And, and now we're shooting in North Carolina. Jessica told us that the experience of playing Tammy Faye Baker is going to stay with her for a while. Tammy Faye preached love, whereas many in the televangelist community preached otherwise. Here she is talking about her last day of shooting and what the experience meant to her overall. The very last day we ended with the puppets, you know, like kind of the montage of, of me singing like, you know, I'm Susie Muppet. And then like Allie the Alligator and like all of that silliness. That's how we ended, which was a beautiful way to end. And I was so sad that last day because, and I felt this a couple times with the characters. I just like was sad to say goodbye to her because I never... I'm going to get emotional talking about it, but I never got to meet her. I've met her family and I've met like people that have um, been influenced and moved and supported by um, what she believed and what she preached. But I never actually got the experience of like sitting in a room with her. And I felt such a responsibility, not just to her, um, but also to this idea of like, we as a society did something wrong. And I felt a responsibility that we needed to write it, write that wrong. And um, so I was sad that last day because it was like, it was the closest I could have been to meeting her was like, in some sense, you know, wearing her hopes and dreams and fears and all of that. And when you walk in someone else's shoes, you really feel like um, you know them in a, in a different kind of way. It's interesting, you see this film and, you know, at the end, there's these two realities, you know? And I think about the world we live in, and Tammy preached one way, you know, this unconditional love, and that everyone is deserving of love, and has a right to be acknowledged, you know? And then Jer Jerry Falwell preached kind of the opposite. And there were like these two paths we could have gone down. And unfortunately, we didn't go down the Tammy Faye path. Um, in terms of like this country, in terms of where we are as a society. And so I think also for me, the, the final scene of the film is really an important scene and a beautiful scene because it's like, it's like Tammy's idea of what the world could be in like stark comparison of what the world is. And we, we end in her, I guess, her vision and her dreams. And I guess also that's a hopeful way of saying it's not too late. Thanks, Jessica. Eyes of Tammy Faye is streaming now. And that's it for this episode of The Awardist. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at ClarissaNYC1 and Josh Rothkopf. We'll see you next week. This episode of the Awardist Podcast is hosted by Clarissa Cruz and Joshua Rothkoff. Produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio. Executive produced by Shana Krokmal. Edited and mixed by Sammy Junio and Lauren Klein. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.